I'll talk about diagnosable conditions, and then we'll talk about obsessive compulsive disorder and the disorders that are very OCD-like, that get a, a distinct label. There are a number of anxiety disorders, so I'll have to be fairly brisk and brief when I talk about them. But if you're interested in learning more about them, then certainly you know, you're free to Google and, and learn all the nitty gritties. But what I'm going to concentrate on more is the differential, how you would label someone with one or the other. Now, what all these disorders do share in common, not surprisingly, is that there is a level of anxiety that's considered pathological. We, you, we already know some degree of anxiety is good and healthy and adaptive and motivating, but there is a point where we judge that your anxiety level is aberrant. And for example, if you get anxious about exams, that's probably good because it means you're preparing for them. On the other hand, if your anxiety level is so high that you're taking the exam and the anxiety is interfering with your ability to remember the information, retrieve the information, it becomes more diagnosable. If you are walking down the aisles in IGA, down the cereal aisle, and you feel overwhelming panic, that's not normal. Your HPA axis should not be just randomly firing in these contexts. That's pathological. If you are just anxious all the time about everything, it's as if your HPA axis is always firing. That's not so um, usual either. So at some point we will say anxiety is good, but at some point we're going to say anxiety is maladaptive. Now do keep in mind there are official definitions of fear versus anxiety, and I totally ignore, <laughs> ignore the rules. They are not interchangeable, but I will use them interchangeably. Technically, if I, for example, had a public speaking fear or phobia, then right now, confronted with the thing that scares me, I should be experiencing fear because it's imminent. The, the threat, the thing that I'm scared of is right there. Last night, worrying about public speaking would be more anticipatory, and that's more anxiety. But I don't, I, again, I use the words interchangeably. When we talk about the diagnosis of panic disorder, that means someone is having panic attacks. Okay, once again, a beautiful definition from DSM. What is panic disorder? You have panic attacks. You have to go on and then define what a panic attack is. But the key here is that they are re recurrent and they are uncued. They are out of the blue. They aren't because the dog is there or I'm afraid of heights or I, it's more unpredictable. So the nature of panic disorder isn't just that you have panic attacks. I could have panic attacks in other disorders, but the panic attacks are more unexpected. I didn't think it was going to happen right now, and it's happening. So it's more in unexpected situations. Now, be and because of that randomness to it, you can imagine that you get more fearful of, geez, what if that happens again? What if it happens when I'm driving? What if it happens when I'm in class? What if it happens when I'm at the bank? you start worrying about the fact that I don't know when they're going to happen. So the fear and the preoccupation with what if I have it again in the future is part of the picture. And even if you don't overtly worry and ruminate about, oh, geez, I could have another one. Oh, boy, what if it happens now? They have changed their life. They've, they're changing their behaviors because of the fact that they have these random attacks. So for example, if I realize that when I have these panic episodes, which usually has a lot of heart racing, sort of heart attack type of symptoms, well, geez, I better ignore, avoid any situation that might cause my heart to elevate. Well, there goes my caffeine. There goes my exercise. If I ever go out of the house, it's because, and Duncan will always be with me, so I, I will always have someone accompany me. 
if you're changing your life because of the fact that you're having these random panic attacks, that re fulfills that second requirement. So random recurrent panic attacks, and either you fear having the panic attacks or you're changing your behavior because of your panic attacks. If you look at the symptoms of what a panic attack is, you should think about the fact that this sounds like a heart attack, and that's actually the experience that many people have, and they wind up in the ER because they think they actually are having one. It's abrupt onset, it's short-lived. This is not hours and hours of anxiety. This is abrupt, intense, over in 10 minutes, over in 15 minutes. Okay, so brief-lived. But the symptoms are very suggestive of something very wrong going on. So you can feel this ache and pain in your chest, the tightness, you feel the palpitations, you, you are sweating, you're, you're going numb, you feel like fainting, you, you really believe, and it's based on how real it, it, the experience is, that you are going to die. Now the challenge then for physicians is when you show up to the emergency department, was it a heart attack or not? And often you have to do a lot of cardiac tests and then find out there's nothing really wrong with your heart, it must be anxiety. Now that's not always the right conclusion, but that will be what the person uh, is told to the person is that consider the fact that that was an anxiety attack, a panic attack. And typically the person that was just told that, oh, that wasn't a heart attack, your heart's fine, it was likely just stress and, and a panic attack. And what's the patient gonna say? No way was that anxiety. I know what anxiety is like. I've been a student my whole life. I know what anxiety is. And yet this experience is so intense that it's hard to fathom that it is, an, it is actually anxiety-based and not cardiac-based. So panic disorder, you have that random experience of these intense acute episodes of terror, of panic, lots of physical and cognitive changes, and symptoms. What is agoraphobia? Agoraphobia, you have fear, intense fear, about multiple different situations. And if you look at these situations, you think, I fear being in open places. I fear being in enclosed spaces. Well, isn't that just about everywhere? <laughs> Small, big, I mean, it seems like you're afraid of all these, well, basically every place except your house. Why are you fearful of these places? Why do you avoid all these places because you're so fearful of them? The, the rationale is actually built into the diagnosis. The reason why you don't want to be on buses or, or in crowded theaters or in an elevator, it's because if something embarrassing, something untoward happens, because you're in such an enclosed space, because you're in such a wide open place, you can't quickly get the help you need or escape because you're so embarrassed and you don't want anyone to see you. So. It's very specific about why you are fearful and avoiding multiple different contexts. Now think about panic disorder. Someone who has panic disorder experiences random panic attacks, these heart attack-like episodes. Th those type of people very well may become agoraphobic as a s and have a second diagnosis. They become so afraid of having panic attack, something embarrassing, or a place where they can't get help or escape, that they avoid multiple different contexts as, as described here. So as an example, you would have a panic patient who now avoids 
enclosed spaces, public transportation, wide open spaces. And the reason why is, what if I have a panic attack and I'm embarrassed by all my peers see me? Or I, I'm not getting help and I think I'm having a heart attack. That would be someone who would get a double diagnosis. They'd have panic disorder because they're having the randomly experienced panic attacks. They get the agoraphobia because they're avoiding multiple different places because of the embarrassment or fear of not being able to escape the situation. The question is, can you be just agoraphobic? Can you have someone that, not panic disorder, they're just agoraphobic. They're afraid of multiple different contexts because that embarrassing thing might happen. But the embarrassing thing isn't a panic attack. What other things can you be embarrassed and worried about happening and, and not get help? And in this situation, I've given you the example of someone who is older and might have bladder continence issues. And this is someone who's never had a panic attack, but they get extremely anxious about being outside their home because what if that happens? What other things could you be embarrassed about where you don't want to go out in case that happens? In the elderly, you could have someone also worried about balance problems and falling. And oh, what if I fall and no one's around to help me? And then they start becoming scared of being in these situations where it might be embarrassing or, or difficult to get help. So you can be just agoraphobic, independent of ever having a panic attack per se. Yes. For how, um, no, panic, panic disorder just says multiple. So it just says more than one. So there is no, no great timeline for that. Specific phobia. You are excessively anxious, fearful about an object, a situation that's, again, beyond reason. A lot of us don't like certain things like snakes or cockroaches or rats or when is it a phobia or when is it just I really don't like them. And there's a judgment because a lot of people get a little afraid when they see a spider. But here's an example of where you probably say that this is of the phobic intensity. So this was a case that got written up in the, in the news in Australia about police getting called to someone's home because of domestic violence charges. And what they, heard, they had heard the man yelling, saying, I'm going to kill you. You are dead. Die, die, die. And then furniture getting thrown around the apartment. So police pull up, the guy opens the door, and they're like, where's your wife? I don't have a wife. Where's your girlfriend? I don't have a girlfriend. We have a report of domestic violence and a woman screaming, where is she? I don't know what you're talking about. I live alone. Come on, mate. People clearly heard you yelling, and you're going to kill her, and furniture was getting thrown around. And then he turns red and looks sheepish and says, um, it was a spider. And then the, the police are like, what? It was a spider, a really big one. Well, what about the woman screaming? Um, that was me. <laughs> I really hate spiders. So by the time you're trashing your apartment, screaming, probably a little bit more than, oh, get that spider out of the house. It was a little, little excessive. Now, DSM has only basically four categories for the phobias. Unlike the rest of the world where we say, oh, there's arachnophobia and acrophobia and xenophobia and whatever a phobia you can think of, DSM says we're sticking all our phobias into four types. Your specific phobia, animal type, or situational natural environment, blood injection, injury, and if you don't fit nicely into there, then your other. 
What, okay, animals, pretty obvious, any creepy crawly creature. What about situational? Flying. Flying probably fits well because it's definitely not natural environment. Flying is definitely not. Tunnels, bridges, anything you can think of that really isn't animal or natural environment. Natural environment, often fears are thunder, lightning, and not just that you get scared when it happens, but you're watching the weather and you're seeing that maybe next week there might be a thunderstorm and you're getting all upset even in the anticipation that it might happen. Another natural environment, common one is water, heights. Blood injection injury, those are the hopefully not med students because these are the ones that are going to get really upset about blood and gore and sickness and illness and pass out often as part of their phobic response is having that vasovagal reaction and fainting. All right, so to see if you distinguish phobia from agoraphobia. So what's tricky, a little bit tricky or misleading about this is you see multiple different contexts, at least at first glance. But what really is, does he have one arena, one context or multiple contexts? It's really one context, enclosed spaces. And there's a lot of examples of enclosed spaces, but he really only fears one context. That's not going to get you agoraphobia just by definition. You have to have multiple contexts. So one context. Excessive fear, probably best described as a specific phobia. So the main difference in this case is you only have one context, which is probably best captured by specific phobia, but agoraphobia would have at least two, and you need the reason. You need the here for agoraphobia. Why are you afraid of those contexts? It can't just be, well, I don't know. It's because if this, if this thing happens, I'll be embarrassed or can't escape. That's ultimately got to be at the root of why they are agoraphobic of the situations. Social anxiety disorder is dis discussed and diagnosed separately from a specific phobia. You think this is a fairly specific problem. I'm afraid of social situations. Well, DSM wants to highlight this specifically this, this type of problem, and they're not going to just say, oh, it's a specific phobia. They're going to give it its own name. So social anxiety disorder is the current way of describing people who are excessively fearful of criticism, of negative evaluation, of saying the wrong thing. So they often will then avoid either endure social situations with great anxiety, or they'll just avoid them so that they don't feel anxious. You could have someone that is socially anxious across the board, whether it's raising their hand in class or even ordering at a restaurant. They get all scared about even, I don't know if I'll be inept when I make, put in the order. And, 
and at dinner parties, and it's just global. Versus someone could be really adept at socializing and dinner parties and, and going out to bars, and, but put them in front of a podium, and all of a sudden, gravel mouth, very anxious, very, very, very panicked. So then you get the specifier. If you say you're a social anxiety disorder performance only, that's just telling you you're actually pretty good at socializing. It's only in a specific context. And it's not just public speaking. You could have, social, you could have the performance only if it was, I'm a football player, and now I'm really scared to go play football because what if the fans somehow perceive me negatively? What if I screw up and don't you know, make that touchdown pass? Or, so it can be beyond just public speaking. That's just a common one. But if you're a dancer or a singer, it's in a performance setting is the issue. Now, hearing about someone who's worried about what if, you don't, what if I don't say the right thing, what if I'm not boring, or what if I am boring, what if I'm not interesting, what differential should come to mind that we just talked about? Avoidance. We talked about avoidant personality. So just to tie it in with yesterday, we do have to wonder whether this person is uh, someone who has avoidant personality, and I am frozen. Boo. Put this up again. And what was the main way that we were going to differentiate avoidant from social anxiety? This is an anxiety disorder. You really want to hear about the strong phobic type of reaction, the heart racing, blood pressure up, sweating, sort of a terror response. Also, another thing you could think about is, would a social anxiety disorder, okay, social anxiety would be, what if you don't like me? What if I'm not interesting? But what, would you have confidence in other areas? Could you say, well, I can do this well, and I'm a good student, and they're not globally low self-esteem, which is what the, the avoidance often is, is the low self-esteem in all respects and not just socializing. But anyway, the major thing is the degree of, of anxiety. Generalized anxiety. Mother, this is mom. Mom worries about everything. It's not just, and again, big things like retirement and, and major, major things to worry about and finances. This would be, daughter, what? You better not use the iron. You might burn yourself. Don't use a knife. You might cut yourself. Don't wear sandals. Your toes might get stepped on. Don't wear dangly earrings. Your ears might get pulled. Don't ride the horse. You might fall off. Don't stay up late. You might be tired. Whatever you can think about, the first automatic reaction is what could go wrong, and it probably will. So it's just worried. What if I'm not, what if I'm not liked? What if my husband doesn't like me anymore? What if I don't pay my bills on time? It's just everything that you can worry about, they worry about. So generalized is uncontrolled, it's almost a cognitive bias. It's just you're, you hear something and you find the negative to it that could happen and you worry about it. There is a duration requirement for this, but usually by the time you see someone who's GAD, you'll say, how long have you been this person who worries all the time? And they'll say, since I was a kid. They'll say, I have always been the type that worries about everything. So it is typically a very long-lasting phenomenon. And if cognitively you're always worried about what could happen, what, what, what untoward thing could happen, then chances are you are motorically uptight. You're, you're going to be anxious, you're going to feel it, you're, you're going to be tired, you're going to be coiled, you're going to be ready to like, spring because you're so tense. 
So GAD is just the chronic, chronic, chronic warrior, anxious. Separation anxiety disorder. You talked about separation anxiety as a normal phenomenon in development. And usually around age two even, this should start diminishing. You shouldn't be so upset when caregiver's not around. But this can persist and this can persist. And you're not gonna diagnose it terribly young, but you know, when you're eight years old, you still shouldn't be that afraid of something happening to your, the person you're most bonded to. It's usually mom, it could be mom and dad, but let's use mom as an example. And I emphasize person because I always forget to highlight that this doesn't have to be a child with separation anxiety. Couldn't it be husband who's afraid of being away from wife? Wife who is worried about being away from husband. It doesn't have to be a child. But it's this distress about being apart and what might happen that would prevent us from actually being back together. And it is one that typically causes a lot of... of in a child especially, a lot of distress. If mom has to go, I have to go grocery shopping and you can't come with me. I have to go to this meeting, you can't come with me. And tears and stomach ache and crying and just sobbing and no, 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 just what if something happens to me? And they are the ones then that won't want to go to summer camp. They're not going to want to stay over at a friend's house on the weekend. They're not going to want to go to the birthday party because what if when I'm away, something's going to happen? Maybe mom will get kidnapped. Maybe she'll die. Maybe she'll get in a car accident, maybe she'll run away. There's just all these worry, worry, worry about what might prevent them from being together. And typically what gets these people into treatment, especially children, is when they don't want to go to school because they're so worried that when they're at school, what, what might happen? And that's when parents say, well, you got to go to school. We can handle you clinging to me from room to room because they usually don't want to be away from your side. But as soon as they they refuse to go to school or, or they're at school and then insist on coming home because they're so upset, that's what usually gets them into some treatment. Selective mutism, another anxiety disorder in which it manifests, the anxiety manifests as just refusal, conscious decision, I'm not speaking. So it's social anxiety, but it's social anxiety to the point where I'm not, I, I can't be criticized because I'm not speaking. So you can't make fun of me because I'm not speaking. So these kids very well might go to school, but they don't answer questions. They might even play with their peers. They might go play hops, they play out on the playground, but they don't speak. Now, some very well, the, the social anxiety may manifest as they won't even play, they won't write, they won't nod, they won't do anything. But some would be just... Again, they might have minimal symptoms, like they'll only nod or shake their head. So it doesn't have to be absolute, absolute mutism. Now, when you think about people that have anxiety, that you need to rule out causes other than having it be a psychological condition. And one example would be, well, exams are Monday, and people, students are starting to get anxious, but their anxiety levels more than usual. And people are wondering, am I developing an exam phobia? Do I have some, some anxiety disorder kicking in? No, it's a Red, Bull, <laughs> a Red Bull induced anxiety problem. Because around the time exams, people are staying up later, drinking a lot more caffeine than usual. And anxiety can, I mean, sorry, caffeine can induce anxiety. And especially in high levels. So 
if you decided term two. Term one, I kind of partied a lot. I'm going to give up alcohol for term two, really concentrate on my grades. And as a consequence, if you are a, a fairly regular high user of alcohol, a consequence of sedative withdrawal is anxiety. It's one of the major symptoms of withdrawing from a sedative like alcohol is having anxi intense anxiety. So rule out other causes for anxiety instead of just saying, oh, you must have generalized anxiety if you're anxious. Well, no, maybe it's caffeine-induced. So think about possibilities. Now, how do we develop anxiety you heard earlier today about classical conditioning and Pavlovian conditioning and pairing. So I wasn't afraid of dogs until what? I got attacked by a dog. I wasn't afraid of water until I almost drowned in water. I wasn't afraid of flying until a plane became very turbulent. And so the idea is two things got associated and you have now learned uh, 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 this fear response. Even in panic disorder, in which we think those panic attacks are just randomly occurring. One thought is that it, maybe it's not so randomly occurring that let's say my, my normal, when I'm anxious, like really scared, my stomach just rolls. It's like horrible stomach roll experience. And that's part of my blood pressure going up, my heart racing, sweating. Now, when I experience just a stomach roll, maybe the elevator went down a little too fast, or we went over a bump, and oh, my stomach rolls. Or I ate bad food, I have food poisoning, and my stomach's like rolling and rolling. And I am starting to feel panic. I'm starting to feel anxiety. It's just a stomach roll. But the last time I had a stomach roll, it was in the context of terror. So the, in this case, the stomach roll was enough to trigger or cue the full-blown response. So that there may be, even in panic disorder, the physical symptoms that are cueing the actual anxiety attack, panic attack. So oftentimes people would say, oh, I'm walking up this hill and just out of the blue, panic. Well, maybe it wasn't out of the blue. As you were walking up the hill, what happened? Heart rate started going up. And the heart rate, last time your heart rate went up, it was in the context of fear, so it's probably adaptive to have the whole fear, fear response. So this learning through association, classical conditioning is thought to underlie much of our learned anxiety. And as you also learned this morning, that, well, amygdala for sure, you've heard about over and over again about being so important for the fear response, and certainly learned fear responses, that our frontal lobe is supposed to help suppress the firing of the amygdala, especially once you realize that this shouldn't be scary anymore. I've been exposed to dogs, many, 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 many beautiful, happy, nice dogs, and I haven't been bitten for years and years. That over time, you should learn that probably you don't need to be afraid at this point. And the frontal lobe is supposed to help with that sort of inhibition. And then as you also learn, the hippocampus is important for mem remembering, keeping track of the context in which something you've learned fearful has happened. So for example, if I had been bitten by a very large dog as a kid, and over and over again, now I'm in front of an old poodle that doesn't even have teeth and it's really friendly. The hippocampus should be sort of providing the context saying, yeah, it is a dog, 
dog can be bad, but look at the context. There's, this dog's not going to hurt you. Remember, remember the bearing, big teeth, large dog? That's more scary. So it should be able to help inhibit amygdala firing when the context is safer. Take a look at this question. So in this situation, probably the best way to approach the question is find out, well, her response is, in this situation, like it or not, she's extremely fearful. So if she's fearful, then, then you've got to look for a choice that talks about amygdala firing, right? So there's no inhibition of amygdala. The fact that they're anxious is saying amygdala is causing the HP axis to fire, and we're going to be anxious. And what's not happening is there supposed to be some memory about, yeah, it is really scary to be in a rough ocean and trying to swim against strong currents versus something so benign as still water that the context is not being taken to in, into consideration. That means the hippocampus isn't doing its job in helping to suppress the fear system. Very good. How do we treat anxiety? We do want to somehow stop the amygdala from firing. How do we do that? Well, we can try meds, but as a psychologist, we like to think not meds first, especially for anxiety. And once again, we keep going back to this specific psychotherapy technique called cognitive behavioral therapy. And the cognitive aspect, once again, is working with your thoughts. And this is particularly useful, I think, when you think about generalized, well, anything. If you have an anxious thought, you have to recognize that you have the anxious thought, and then you have to say, what are the chances? What are the chances this really is going to happen? And challenge the likelihood of it. So, for example, if I was someone that had panic attacks, and a panic disorder, and my mind is saying, oh my God, you're going to die, you're having a heart attack. Not a, a good thought, because that thought's going to probably escalate your anxiety. So instead, knowing that they are panic attacks, that I, instead of saying, I'm going to die as a heart attack, it's going to be, it's just a panic attack, sit down, it'll pass in 10 minutes. And if you can change your thought, then at least that experience that you have might not be escalated if you can control your thought. I worry about everything. Oh, Duncan's not home yet. What if he died? What if he got in a car accident? What, what are the chances? You have to say, what are the other options? He could just be late because it's bad traffic. He could have been late because he's at a store buying me a gift. You, I mean, you can come up with different scenarios cognitively, but you've got to work with your thoughts instead of that automatic, the bad thing has happened. 
Behavior therapy is much more again doing, doing, doing. If I'm afraid of public speaking, what do I do? I public speak. If I'm afraid of dogs, I expose myself to dogs. If I'm afraid of flying, I fly anyway. And you basically expose yourself to the point where over time, you're supposed to have your fear sort of extinguish. Okay? Thanks to frontal lobe especially, you hopefully learn over time it's not dangerous and the fear goes away. So CBT for anxiety disorders can be effective. You gotta stick with these type of approaches for weeks, but you can have some really good effects. We do have medications we can use in isolation. We can use them as an adjunct, hopefully, if we use them as an adjunct to the CBT. Our, benzo our two main anxiolytic type of drugs would be the benzos, which you know is with sort of GABAergic drugs that help inhibit neuronal firing. And they are definitely anxiolytics, they're sedatives, but they have risk potential because they are drugs of abuse. They, you can develop tolerance and if you stop taking them, you can have withdrawal. So we'll talk about all the hazards under substance disorders later on in the semester. But they aren't recommended, especially by psychologists, for a, to use for a long period of time. Antidepressants, as much as they may help alleviate depression, also have, for some people, an anxiolytic effect as well. So there are two major classes you can, of drugs that you can consider if you want to try to reduce your sort of emotionality, your, your fear system. Here's your summary chart, really focusing on the trigger, and that's what's the key, is because in a lot of situations you can say, I experience panic when... Does that mean it's panic disorder because I use the word panic? No, you can have panic basically in all those disorders. What's really important to know is what triggered the panic. If it's random, then it's probably panic disorder. If it's because there's a, an animal or a spider in front of me, then it's probably a, a specific phobia. So really concentrate and focus on what the trigger is of the, of the panic reaction. All right, for the last few minutes, let's talk about OCD and other disorders that are obsessive-compulsive-like. OCD, technically you can have obsessions and or compulsions. You don't have to have both, but in reality, the most do. Most would have obsessions and compulsions. But if you only had obsessions or only had compulsions, you could still get this diagnosis. Obsessions, by definition, distress you. They're repeated, intrusive thoughts, typically. What if I didn't lock the door? What if I didn't lock the door? What if I didn't turn off the stove? What if I didn't lock the goat gate? What if I didn't, and it's just this over and over thought, or it could be an image. This horrible, horrible image comes to mind of, of, of mayhem or, or d death or dismemberment, whatever it is, pornography, whatever it is, but it's distressful. Or it's an urge. I feel like killing Duncan. I feel like killing Duncan. I feel like killing Duncan. And it keeps coming back, and I'm distressed by it. That makes it an obsession. If you have repetitive urges, thoughts, impulses that aren't distressing you, you kind of like the fact that you're having this repeated thought or urge, then it's not obsession. Obsession must be distressful in the world of psych. Compulsions, then, are repetitive rituals, something you do that, dis that diminishes the distress. 
So if I worry that I am getting contaminated by touching keyboards and doorknobs and shaking hands, what's my logical compulsion? Washing a hundred times a day, making sure anything I sit on sanitize, everything I touch sanitize. If I have the, re if I, my obsession is what if I didn't turn off the stove and the house is going to be burned down by the time I get home? I would make sense that my compulsion to reduce my anxiety about that would be go check, go check, go check. The problem with this is it's one thing to have the thought, what if, but then when you do go check, what should happen? I should say, okay, I checked, the door's locked, the oven's off, the goat pin's secure, and I shouldn't have that doubt come back. But it comes back, and I have to go check again. It defies logic by the 10th time. Oh, but maybe when I checked the window locks, that maybe when I checked it, I actually accidentally unlocked it. Let me go double check again. So it goes on and on and on. The obsessions and compulsions aren't always meaningfully related. So for example, this is a guy who, sorry, this can, I don't know why it's not on the screen. The obsession was this, this whole, I can't stop thinking about death and dying and being afraid of dying. I don't want to die, but I'm just, it's just this thought that keeps coming, like, geez, what if I die? I don't really want to die. So his reaction to that distressful, intrusive thought was, I must do some sort of weird finger sequence movement many, many times before I'm allowed to walk forward. Now, why that happens to reduce his distress, I don't know. It doesn't make sense, but it works for him. And the problem with his was that he, his finger sequences weren't just one, two, three, four, five, okay, now I can walk. He has to do many thousands of these movements before he's allowed to walk. So to walk from here to the wall takes, what, five seconds? Well, seven hours. So he was very, very debilitated by his OCD, but his obsession, okay, I can understand just having constant thoughts of death, but the ritual, the, the compulsion's very weird and not related, still OCD. So by the time, I mean, a lot of us might double check and triple check and just make sure and don't be OCD-ish, but it's got to be really time-consuming or impairing, distressful. Otherwise, go check three times. Three times, I think, is okay. Is four times okay? Maybe. <laughs> Again, how impairing is it? Are you missing exams because you had to keep doing it? Are you not able to get to class on, uh, teach on time? You have to find out how disruptive, how distressful it is. Obsessive compulsive behaviors can be seen in drug addictions. It can be seen in eating disorders. If the OCD is captured by a different label, like anorexia, then we don't worry about saying they're OCD and anorexic. We just say they're anorexic. So anorexia, or so OCD use if there's not some other better way of capturing their obsessiveness. Can they be delusional? I know I must check the oven 25 times or the house will burn down. That's delusional and we keep them in this chapter. We don't actually move them into the psychotic schizophrenia disorders chapter. We just specify they're OCD, but they are of delusional intensity. Okay, so with absent insight. There is circuitry that we've identified that is overactive. So the, the, the CSTC loop is very much identified and articulated as being involved in OCD. We know it's overactive. If we did a PET scan, we'd see metabolic, glucose-wise, they are overactive. And then if we say, all right, you have a germ 
sort of obsession? Think about your germs. Think about your germs. And then the more they start thinking and worrying about their germs, that circuitry becomes even more overactive. And if we can get rid of their OCD through treatment, guess what happens to that loop? It's back to normal metabolism again. It's not hyperactive. So this loop is thought to be important in maintaining this sort of obsessional, compulsive, uh, compulsive loop. We also, mostly because of the fact that our drugs that increase serotonin help, all of our SSRIs are approved for OCD, that we, based on inference, suspect that there is some sort of serotonin dysregulation where by, by if we increase serotonin transmission, we're correcting some of the problem. Now, how we treat it, ERP. If I am afraid of germs, then I go and shake hands and wipe my hands across tables and subway rails, and I don't wash. Or I'm asked to think about the fact that you might not have locked your door. Think about it. Go ahead. Think about it. But then don't let them check. So it's once again exposing them to the thing that they are fearful, distressful about, and not letting them engage in their ritual. Because when you let them engage in their ritual, that ritual gets reinforced because it makes them feel better. And you don't want to reinforce their ritual. You want their anxiety, their distress to diminish over time because they see nothing bad happens if you don't go check. The house didn't burn down. And at the same time, you don't want to reinforce their, their rituals by having that anxiety reduced because they go engage in it. And then once again, just the meds. What if you go through behavioral therapy the ERP approach, you've tried meds and they still don't work. What's our choices? Well, we have two invasive techniques. One is the cingulotomy or the capsulotomy. They both involve a lesion, again, very small, very targeted, but it does involve destroying some tissue to interrupt that CSTC loop. We want to interrupt that hyperactivity. So here is trying to show you the, the anterior cingulate and just a, oh shoot, my. See this tiny, trying to emphasize, look, we're not doing lobotomy. We're not severing the whole lobe, just a discrete few millimeter size lesion trying to interrupt that overactive loop. Now, how we did it in the past, we used to do this by drilling a hole in the skull and then putting in basically an electrode and then heating it up, frying your tissue. Now we're trying not to do the craniotomy and still trying to destroy uh, a small part of the brain, but we're doing it through basically uh, converging beams of radiation. So one beam in and of itself, not so bad, but if we have converging beams, then that's gonna destroy the tissue very in a focused way and obviate the need to open up the skull. And then we have deep brain stimulation where we have a pulse generator implanted in the chest. And remember how we talked about vagus nerve, how you can wind around the, wind the electrode around the vagus nerve? This isn't a vagus nerve. This is indwelling deep into the brain, subthalamic nucleus and stimulation. Every day for years and years and years. Once again, to interrupt the overactive circuitry. Obviously very invasive. Both of these would not, these would not be used unless 
they were what we called malignant OCD. They were cases that aren't responding to anything else, and their quality of life is really, really low because they're spending their whole day engaged in their OCD behaviors. So it's for resistance, treatment-resistant cases. And the treatment doesn't cure them, but it, they say it makes malignant cases more normal. You're an average OCD patient now, not a malignant OCD patient. So it still helps a lot, it doesn't cure them. So what I'd probably recognize first of all is that his OCD doesn't seem so debilitating, never tried treatment before, so I probably wouldn't go for the invasive DBS or any sort of neurosurgery, psychosurgery approaches. Benzodiazepines really aren't a treatment for OCD. They might be good for anxiety, but they're not necessarily the way that you want to manage obsessive compulsiveness. So that leaves really behavioral therapy, hopefully, as your first choice with or without some antidepressants. Good. Other disorders falling in this chapter. We've already mentioned BDD when we were talking about differentials for somatic issues. In this case, remember that the preoccupation, the obsession, is vanity-related. It is my thinning hair. My, my chin, my chin, my skin, my scar underneath my chin. It's hideous. I can't even go out in public. It's so gross. I'm like, where is it? And so minor or even non-existent, but they're so, so, so obsessed that they are disfigured. And here is an example of the things that people might obsess over. So it often is my pockmarked skin. Oh, my goodness, my skin's so blemished. Ugh. And you look at their skin and what? beautiful skin. There's nothing wrong with their skin. Size of their nose, thinning of their hair. This is a case of someone who has BDD. He's 26. He's worried about his scarred skin, thinning hair, asymmetrical ears, and wimpy, inadequately muscular body build. Even though he's absolutely normal looking, normal in stature, everything, he thinks he's ugly and hideous. He spends five to six hours a day compulsively checking his disliked body areas in mirrors and any other reflecting services, such as windows. He pulls at his ears to try to even them up. He compulsively picks his skin, sometimes using razor blades, trying to clear it up. He missed several months of high school because he was too preoccupied to do schoolwork. He couldn't attend college because he didn't want to be seen by people. So this goes beyond normal vanity, for sure, because of the degree of impairment they're experiencing. They're, they can be suicidal. They refuse to go out. They're, they're, it's more than just, oh, I'm worried about the size of this. Let me wear 
black and vertical stripes because it makes me look better. You know, it's not, this is major functional impairment due to it. Can they be delusional? Can they know without a doubt that they are hideous looking because of their huge nose, even though it's an average size nose? Yes. So you can have delusional quality to this and you still stay in this category. Don't say they're delusional disorder somatic because it's vanity related, it's gonna stay BDD, and then you emphasize that it's with delusions. Just to mention, there are briefly obsessional compulsive other disorders, hoarder, the one that will hoard and accumulate to the point where you can't use the bedroom, you can't use the bathroom, you can't use the kitchen, why? Because there's so much stuff in it. So it's pathological hoarding, that's OCD related, they're worried that one day I might need this, one day I might need this. So if you have that worry, what do you do? You stock up. <laughs> Excoriation. Pick, 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 until the point where you have lesions. And it's no good reason. You don't know why you do it. Maybe it's stress, but it's not, you don't know why. You don't want to do it. But it's not, what if I'm picking because I think I have lice? I'm picking because I think my, I have these horrible blemishes on my skin and I'm picking like in the BDD case? Is that excoriation? No, because the person's picking because they think they're trying to get rid of an ugly pockmark. That's just BDD. If I'm high on methamphetamine, and most people high on methamphetamine long enough, start picking and excoriating. That's not BDD, because, or sorry, that's not excoriation because it's meth-induced. So really only diagnoses if you can't explain why they're doing it for another reason. Same thing, repetitive pulling out your hair. No good reason, no good reason. You just do it. What if I'm pulling out my hair? Because I think there are, are microchips implanted in my scalp by aliens, and that's why I'm picking my hair. I don't call that trichotillomania because you're schizophrenic, and that's going to be probably accounted for based on your delusional belief. So again, these are repetitive, compulsive actions, not that are explained by drug use or the effect of another, another disorder. And what do we do? Well, ideally for these other type of OCD problems, we still would do cognitive behavioral if we can, behavioral in particular. So let's say I have the urge to pull. I, have, I can't stop it. I don't want to pull my hair out, I can't stop. I have the urge to pick and I can't stop picking. So the idea is, what can you do instead? So there are all sorts of things, toys, fiddling devices that you can have that when you have the urge to pull, you do something else. And now I'm seeing these, yes, every, even in the pet store, I'm seeing fidget spinners. What are you selling fidget spinners in the pet store for? So that's the idea is if I have an urge to do this, do something else, and maybe that'll help you get over your your urge if you can distract yourself from it. Okay, and here is your summary chart focusing on the difference between your OCD problems. Have a great rest of the day. I'll see you uh, tomorrow. <laughs>